everybody. Welcome to the second episode of the STL MediaWorks podcast. Uh, my name is Matt Patston. If you missed our first episode, um, it's nice to meet you. I uh, said we were going to do this bi-weekly, and we still are, uh, but it has been more than two weeks since our last episode for uh, reasons I'm about to explain. Um, for this episode, I talked to Caitlin May Petrin, who was an editorial assistant slash jack-of-all-trades at St. Louis Magazine, uh, but she's also done stuff for St. Louis Public Radio and the Riverfront Times and a bunch of other places around town. Um, she comes from the world of academia at Wash U. Uh, she migrated from there into journalism, so we talked a little bit about how that informs her reporting process and the way she approaches some of her work, and it was a really awesome conversation. Except that it was actually two really awesome conversations, because after Caitlin and I talked the first time, I accidentally lost the second half of our interview, and then I made her come back and do a second one, which explains our more than two-week production schedule. Uh, so many thanks to Caitlin, uh, not only for her patience, but also for the awesome work she's doing and for uh, some really good talks. So thanks, and here we are. So hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> um, so you just uh, came over from St. Louis Magazine over mm-hmm. in Brentwood, right? Yep. What are you working on today? Uh, I went to the offices of Sherpa CRM, which is a software company that, um, well, it's a branch of a senior living facility Hmm. um, that developed a software to sort of sell their unique approach uh, to senior living, which focuses more on uh, sort of personalizing and helping people adjust to the change rather than being like, you have to go here now. (laughs) Um, I hear people don't like that. Yeah. So anyway, they, uh, they... designed these gorgeous offices um, that we're featuring in at home in an upcoming issue. So oh, I went cool. and got the tour and saw all the super fancy stuff yeah. at the office. Yeah. Um, I want to get more into sort of the SLM stuff later on because I have a lot mm-hmm. of questions. Um, but I first want to talk about you are, I think, like me, a Missouri transplant, right? Mm-hmm. You grew up in Washington, is that right? Yeah, Seattle area. Oh, cool. Lived in Spokane for a while as well. Mm. Did you do any uh, journalism growing up or anything? Um, if you count founding a newspaper in middle school, Absolutely, yes. I count that. Um, I still count but, my elementary school newspaper yeah, as journalism it's experience. Really so, yeah, it's really experience. It goes on the resume. Right, yeah. Yeah. It's so. my top, a top, top item. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then you uh, came out here for Wash U, is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So... What led to that? Uh, I actually, at the time, was looking at getting a MD-PhD, uh, and I got a biological research fellowship for the year before my wow. uh, freshman year. That's so pretty I impressive. came for that, <laughs> and I really didn't like working in a lab. Ah, you have to do that quite a bit, huh? Yes, that is <laughs> a very important part. Um, yeah. So when so, did that happen? Was that uh, freshman year, sophomore year? Yeah, it was yeah. The, the semester before freshman year, so mm-hmm. it was like the summer program. Yeah. And then <laughs> did you have like a, like a freak-out moment, like I just came all the way out here and what am I going to do? Not really, because I, I feel like everything I've done has sort of made sense together in a lot of ways. I do a lot of health journalism mm-hmm. and science journalism, and that sort of sprang naturally. I was like, what I actually like about this is the sort of culture and person side of it, not actually doing the lab work. Right. Um, so it sort of just developed naturally from where I started. Right. Well, yeah, and I wanted to ask you about um, this uh, grinder thing that you wrote and mm-hmm. wash you for the fellowship. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
because of last read, and I was I can't believe that I'm I glad you enjoyed had it. to download the PDF to read it and just not been published anywhere. Yeah, I I wanted to pitch it somewhere, but the research process because it's designed to be an academic fellowship is two years long so by the time it actually got published through the university it was too out of date to pitch so I was like damn it yeah right Um, do you want to give like a little summary for six or so listeners for this yeah so the um I wrote a piece called who's afraid of the big bad future I think was the final title it was Um, and uh about a group of people who at the time that I started writing it were a little known subculture of DIY body modifiers um who are attempting to become cyborgs by sort of just sticking things in themselves in their basements is essentially the summary of it. Um, and actually during the time that I was doing the fellowship, they like hit national media attention. I was like, damn it. <laughs> Why am I doing this for college instead of... Um, but, so you like scooped everybody in the totally and wrong environment to scoop And then had to publish it like a anyone. year afterwards. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, so, and it was really cool. I talked to, I went to uh, Silicon Valley Tech... Uh, not quite tech. It was a futurist convention. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to a, a nerd convention where a bunch of the grinders were presenting and talked to a ton of the people. They're, you know, folks with finger implants that are magnets. Yeah. And, uh, one guy has ear ear magnets that can actually let him rig up a headphones, that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. just explored the... Um, sort of both philosophical and cultural consequences of their ideology, what they're trying to do with it versus what's sort of actually happening with right. it. Right. Well, it seems like it, just such like the underbelly of what you originally went to school to go to. Yes, basically. <laughs> so is that what got you interested in uh, the subject? Um, to some degree. I think I was also partially just, you know, trolling around on the Internet and was like, whoa, I found, I remember I found an article about, um, on a pretty minor publication about how one of these uh, biohackers, not the people who were doing implants, but just general biohackers, were uh, being investigated by the FBI oh, because geez. the materials that they were buying were just like ever so slightly illegal. That the FBI <laughs> was like, we could be doing something super illegal with this. Um, and so there was this very like minor publication trying to figure out how legal is this? Why Why are people doing it? Um, and that led me to the implantable people who I thought were just more interesting characters, honestly. Because um, mm-hmm. there's, there's definitely a big step from looking at microbacteria in your basement to, you know, implanting yourself right. with magnets in your basement. Trying so. to cyborg yourself up. Exactly. So. Yeah, become a spaceship, as mm-hmm. uh, one guy says. Yeah. Um, so what other kind of reporting did you do? Uh while you were in school? While I was in school, I did some general news reporting. Um, I did, you know, the, the standard go to the event at the university <laughs> and write the event summary. Yeah. Um, I freelanced quite a bit. Uh, I freelanced for a random paper in, well, a Gannett paper, actually, not that random, in Florida that was covering a Missouri uh, murder trial in Missouri. Oh, wow. Do you remember the trial? Um, oh gosh, I don't remember the guy's name. It was it was someone who they were trying to extradite to Florida. Oh, um, all right. And he had killed a doctor in Florida. Was the allegation? Hmm. Um, no, I don't remember his name. It was very minor. Yeah. Like the only reason that they were interested in sending someone there is because they they it's a super big deal because the person 
that he killed was really popular in Florida. Ah. Um, so they, the people in Florida really cared about catching the bad guy who killed this beloved community doctor. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I did I did some work for St. Louis Public Radio and the Riverfront Times as an intern, mm-hmm. um, and also did some work with the Common Reader, which is sort of a hybrid journalism, more essay, nonfiction essay style publication mm-hmm. through the university. Um, I wanted to hear a little bit about how you kind of like got your bearings in St. Louis after coming here from a fairly different kind of community. Um, because one of the things that I mm-hmm. don't want to talk too much, but, um, you know, journalism is obviously a good way to learn about yeah. the place where you live. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a really important part of uh, doing that in a city in the Midwest. So I want to hear what your process was for that. Honestly, I knew about nothing about it <laughs> until I got a car. Yeah. Because I, um, I was in Washington and I would try to go to things and it would be like a two-hour process to get to Midtown. Yeah from WashU. So I sort of, you know, I I would read the news and I would sort of know what was happening, but I didn't really have that mental map and didn't really know who people were um, until I finally was like, I just need to buy a car. I'm going to pay for it with internships. um, And then I started really getting a sense of, you know, being able to go to things. And I think it was making the connections in the super small St. Louis world that really helped me figure out what was going on on a a more news political scale just because, like, you don't have a car, you're sort of stuck on the metro line, which is a very specific look right. at what St. Louis is and how it functions. And yeah. So. yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you've covered such a wide variety of stuff, right? and you do um, probably should mention there's like a multimedia journalist, so you can do like video mm-hmm. and audio and yeah. um, all kinds of that stuff. Is that uh, purposeful, or are you sort of a kind of person where you just take things as they come up? Um combination of I, I made a deliberate effort to pick up a lot of those multimedia skills because um, mm-hmm. they're interesting to me and I'd already always sort of wanted to do them and because they're marketable as well <laughs> um, and as I learn more about them I think different stories definitely lend themselves to different formats and that's sort of why I ended up getting better at certain formats because there were some stories that you know with the, the follow-along video or you can tell in a different way or catch aspects of it that just don't translate in text. Um, so that was both a combination of deliberate and random because I would, you know, come to a story and be like, man, I wish I had some way to articulate how this person's dance that she's choreographing, yeah, right. choreographing uh, looks, and I, I can't do that in text, and so that turned into a video project. Right. Um, and so there's, I guess, yeah, like a combination. <laughs> Yeah, um, I wanted to talk about that story a little bit too. Um, that, that was for RFT, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So for RFT, talk about uh, profiling this kind of cancer cluster uh, out in Florissant um, that's sort of brought on by nuclear runoff, and there's a whole big history behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of made, got me thinking about how. Um, like a lot of stuff you do on a day-to-day basis, like you're the health and home blogs editor for St. Louis Magazine, and you can sort of feel like switch tones really fast between that and like, oh, yeah. these people are getting cancer. People are dying versus look at this pretty couch. <laughs> um, so how do you how do you do that? Because I feel like um, a lot of people get stuck in one or the other. Interesting. I don't know that I consciously 
think about switching. I feel like it's more of a mood thing where sometimes I'm just like, I really want to write the interesting, complicated story where the interviews are maybe kind of tough to get through and yeah. um, the conversations and research is harder. And sometimes I'm like, whew, I need a break. I just want to talk to an artist who makes pretty things. Um, so I think it's more of a just uh, mental recalibration or sort of being in the mood for that type of story. Um, and I'm lucky that I have a lot of Hi, it's just Matt again, uh, without Caitlin. Just want to say this is where our first recording ended, because I don't uh, know what I'm doing. So now I'm going to turn it back over to us for part two of this episode. Thanks for bearing with me. Here we are. Okay, so we're back after I messed up and deleted half of our first interview. So I'm sorry about that. No problem. <laughs> um, but the place we left off... this time. Yeah, yeah, I deleted like... Uh, 84 interviews off my phone over the last week. So I think we should be okay this time. Mm-hmm. Um, but so where we left off, you're talking about how a lot of your work um, like goes back and forth between being super like serious, kind of difficult to both grasp and difficult to write about stuff, and then um, lighter like culture content and uh, arts and home design and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, which kind of led me to want to ask you about the magazine a little bit. Because okay. um, I love City Magazines. I've mm-hmm. sort of been like the passion that I've had for journalism going throughout. So I wanted to ask what you think the strengths of your magazine are in the bigger St. Louis media world. I mean, I think we do some, we have the flexibility to do some really in-depth coverage um, that sort of after the fact down the line, our sort of mantra is, uh, you know, we're, we're probably not going to get there first, so let's make sure that we do it in a way that's really unique, really thorough, um, and really responsible. And I mean, I think also we have a pretty solid lineup of, of writers and editors who are all know the city so well, which is, you know, the city mag thing, um, that we're able to find a lot of the content that, you know, is, is the perfect fit for, what St. Louis and want to read and finding cool stories in the city, that sort of thing. Um, just say we're good at it, which is good because <laughs> our job yeah. is as a city magazine. But um, well, and so um, we touched a little bit earlier about how you know it's kind of hard to find those stories that St. Louisans want to read because St. Louisans want to read so much different stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it seems like St. Louis maybe more than another city would have a hard time like having a city magazine be able to distill. It's, I don't know, editorial identity yeah. town. Honestly, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know that I know enough about like how other cities read to be able to to compare it. But I probably yeah. don't either. But yeah, I mean, I do think we have a lot of breadth, and I mean, we're like, like now as we speak, thinking about, you know, how are we going to change sections and mm-hmm. wanting to focus more on doing more history content because St. Louis really loves history. <laughs> Um, and that sort of thing to just better speak to what people are reading and what, what they want to know more about. So mm-hmm. so then how does, like, your the stories that you're personally drawn to line up with, like, the stories that are good for the magazine? Um, I think it, it, it depends on the given month just in terms of, like, we have, you know, we have special health content yeah. issues, and sometimes I'm like, oh, I have this, like, great health story, heard about this great thing, you know, and it lines up perfectly with, you know, the women's health issue or something like that. Um, and other times it's um, more geared towards, like, 
blog content, digital content, because I, I am a digital content writer first, I would say. Yeah, um, that's like why you view your primary responsibility there. I, yeah, I think I, you know, I started I started out in print, but yeah. I, I think I just learned it digital, as most <laughs> journalists in their 20s are sort of learning, even if they're focused on a medium, uh, on a specific publishing medium, everyone's sort of thinking in digital format in a lot of ways, so that's... Um, so I think a lot of a lot of sort of what I'm drawn towards ends up working really well for digital, um, and then occasionally it'll fit into a print package too, which mm-hmm. is cool. Um, yeah. But a, a lot of times it's I feel like what I'm interested in is you know stuff that's relevant to sort of niche communities in the city mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, but like communities that are very present and are more present in St. Louis than other areas. Like, I think we have a super big arts community mm-hmm. If you compared to if you go to, you know, an hour or so out west. Like, right. I think um, that sort of thing, sort of finding those, those city-specific niches. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was a terrible answer. <laughs> no, I, would, I don't good. know that I necessarily have a super formed idea on that one because I sort of just I don't really write to a specific publication beyond right. know, making sure that I have the voice of the publication. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think that is a question that like maybe like a messy answer is kind of good for yeah. <laughs> a journalist. Yeah. Because um, I, you know, I didn't, didn't learn journalism. Like I'm going to work at exactly this one publication and right. only that publication yeah. ever. So it's sort of like. You know, lots of different ways to think of content fitting into lots of different spaces. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. And so, um, your uh, transgender homelessness story, I mm-hmm. thought was a great example of that because you're able to do uh, what I thought was a really cool online package because uh, magazine does Atavis now, which I personally mm-hmm. am a yes, huge fan. Of. I love it. We just got to do it. And I was like, um, can I just put this in Atavis because <laughs> it's really pretty and Kevin's yeah. photos are great. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I was hoping you could talk about that story a little bit and how. Uh, what it is and how it developed and yeah, what your um, experience was reporting it. So the story overall is about the uh, higher rates at which transgender people experience homelessness. Um, that's sort of like the broad arc. The more specific arc is we have actually a pretty large uh, transgender population in St. Louis. We have one of the only uh, transgender-specific like resource groups that's kind of large-ish within 100 plus miles, depending on how you count and who you talk to. Yeah. There's a lot of LGBT groups, but very few trans, trans-specific groups, and not a lot of them have resources. So St. Louis is sort of like a hub in a lot of ways, because MTUG has resources. Mm-hmm. Um, as Although I know it's not as much as they would like to have. <laughs> it's not as much yeah. as is necessary, yeah. but they have... Sounds about right. Yeah, a lot more than... Um, so, so you end up with, in St. Louis, we have a pretty pretty large transgender population and we also have a really large homeless population and the uh, transgender folks are much higher. Uh, I think the stats in the story that I was able to find, it's not something that's well studied uh, is that it was something like 30% oh gosh, I'm not even going to try to quote the stats exactly but ridiculously it was like when I tried to calculate it out it wasn't comparable stats but when I was just looking at okay this is how they're surveying veterans it was something like a transgender person was like four to six times more likely to experience homelessness Mm -hmm. than a veteran which like again not comparable studies or methods or anything that was me just like processing through the math yeah and I feel like that's kind of part of the reporting challenge too so Mm -hmm. like I um, I've written about veteran homelessness before and Mm -hmm. you can find like all kinds of studies about that because it's something that um, 
you know, it's not right, right, and it's something that people are. It's easy to get people to rally behind mm-hmm. in a way that it's harder to get people to rally behind transgender homelessness, probably. Mm-hmm. And that it seems like a reporting challenge to go into a community like that that has been sort of historically understudied mm-hmm. and be able to report on it yeah, effectively and wholly. Exactly, because the only the only study that I found that was particularly um, well funded or well conducted was specific to Boston, and that was it. Um, yeah. So you sort of have the big national stats about it's written pretty much any trans or any trans person has probably knows another trans person who's been homeless is basically how those stats pan out nationally mm-hmm. um, and then you have the sort of like hyper local stats but you know there's not really anyone who has the funding to do that kind of work in St. Louis currently um, although I wonder if someone at the Brown School might be yeah, I don't know. Um, anyway, a follow-up so, story for you today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so you end up you end up sort of looking at exactly something that there's you can't just you know write a study. There's no one publishing a study that says right. transgender homelessness is extremely high in St. Louis. You right. kind of have to go talk to the homeless shelters and talk to trans folks mm-hmm. and talk to the people who are doing the alternative housing methods, which is what the story is sort of centered on. Right. Right, so it doesn't lend itself well to like an infographic. No, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like if I if I had if I had had another like two people like if I had two interns helping me <laughs> and another couple hours to spend on it, um, I could potentially have mocked up a sort of like visual representation of how many beds are available, mm-hmm. how many homeless people there are in St. Louis, what proportion of those are likely to be transgender, and then how many beds are available for transgender people, and proportion going in and out, but. Yeah. That stuff takes, like, <laughs> a very multiple-person team. Yeah, so. <laughs> right, right. Well, and I'm, what I loved so much about that story is uh, how much it did feel like you were able to get these people sort of telling their own story, right? Like, mm-hmm. you were sort of there to bear witness and collect, you know, what's been happening and offer some sort of perspective to it. But it really did. I thought the voices of the characters in that story came through uh, really clearly. So I was wondering if there was any kind of strategy behind that when you were reporting or writing. I mean, I think the thing with reporting on um, any, I mean, anyone who is sort of underrepresented in media, but especially trans folks, is that there's very specific set narratives about, you know, this is a, this is the trans coming out story, and this is the transition story, and those are sort of the stories that trans people get to tell. They don't mm-hmm. often get to, you know, talk about... What happens after that. Yeah, their lives or the fact that, you know, Jin wants to be doing dancing again. Like, that's not something that necessarily gets asked. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was really important to me to try to to let people sort of uh, frame their experiences and like yeah transition is an important part of that but it's not you know the whole of who people are or what they're doing or why they end up in the situations that they do and, right um so uh, unfortunately uh, you know a, a, home, a story about uh trans homelessness doesn't really get to uh, explore those sort of like just people living lives aspects um as much as i would like but i think there is an element of that where it's it's not it's thinking about you know the the whole person rather than just the the road narrative. Right. Um, right. Well, that um, we talked about this in the part of the interview that got deleted too, but it seems like uh, um, it seems like one of your wheelhouses as a writer is writing about people and 
their own identities, right? So you do this trans story, the grinder story definitely falls into that. Um, remember your like tattoo artist profiles, although that was a kind of nice compliment to this kind of arc in your work about, mm-hmm. um, you know, how people express who they are in ways mm-hmm. that are different than, you know, Jane Doe down the street. Yeah. Um, so why are you drawn to that kind of story? And then what, um, what are the challenges, I guess? Because mm-hmm. it's really yeah. hard to do that kind of thing. I don't think I can do it. I, I, think, I think the reason I was drawn to it in the first place is because I, um, you know, I've always, always been interested in journalism, but a lot of my, like, formal writing training um, came in an academic context. Right. And so the, you know, the identity politics, even though it's, it's uh, and pretty outdated method of theory in academia, um, it's just sort of creeping its way into pop culture more <laughs> right. recently. In the Media's just getting a hold of it. Yeah, yeah. it's a, the, the sort of like 25-year lag um, is something that was like a big part of my education and what I was writing when I was writing more formal academic papers. Um, so it's something that I was trained to think about. So I think I think to some degrees a, a lot of it is just, you know, that's, that's how I was taught to think about mm-hmm. people and things and processes and right. how everything connects. Um, right. Because you had this kind of like your first kind of reporting was doing academic research. That's sort of like the tools in your tool belt that you had. Yeah, right. exactly. Learning how to work with theoretical frameworks and mm-hmm. these this really specific semantic-driven style. Um, but I think there's also, you know, if you distill those semantics, there's also like a way of thinking about, about people and, how, and relating to people that um, doesn't work so well in academia sometimes because people come in and are like well this is what they're acting you know this is what they say but this is what they actually meant and there's a lot of that um whereas when you come over into journalism you can kind of step away from the like having to enforce your interpretation of that identity narrative and just like letting people tell their stories right Um, you're not you're not like pushing a thesis with your article exactly uh, i mean that's one of the main reasons why (laughs) i um prefer journalistic writing to academic writing Mm because i there's no obligation for me to come in and say well i'm looking at these people's lives and this is what is really happening even though that they say something else is happening you know there's definitely the obligation to fact check and make sure that everything's accurate mm-hmm. and ethical and that sort of thing but there's there's no obligation to turn that into an argument so that you can get uh, paper credit that you can present at a conference for right. other people who right. never affect you're so. not really competing to have your magazine article it, cited by x number of people down it, the road exactly yeah, yeah. so it, it's one of those things where it's 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 a method of thinking that i sort of stole and um <laughs> i think i think that's that's also sort of some of the challenge of it is um, when you're working with stories about identities like navigating the line between i really want to tell these stories and i want to tell them honestly um and I want to let people tell their stories from their own perspectives and not have my hand in it, mm-hmm. sort of forcing it into something that it's not. Um, but I also want to make sure, you know, that I am doing my due diligence to find those facts and balancing mm-hmm. that, like, this is what the person experiences um, against uh, sort of the, like, hard facts of it sometimes can get sticky because you're like, well, there's, you know, there's moments where you're like, this fact technically contradicts this sort of personal experience, right. but the personal experience is still important for people understand right yeah um, so, so I, that's probably the hardest <laughs> part of it is yeah. how to do that yeah well yeah and i think like you know part of the you know i asked a little bit ago like covering these kind of stories that have been underrepresented like mm-hmm. a lot of times the experience is probably more important than the strict 
facts of it, you know, like because mm-hmm. facts aren't going to tell the whole story of what's happening. Yeah, um, I, I would I would agree to that to an extent because I think you have you have the fact story that's uh-huh. like so why do I care, and then you have the experience story that's like well you, that's just anecdotal evidence. So the, I think the really valuable thing in in the sort of looking at identity stories is trying to find. Um, trying to put the facts to it and make the facts mm-hmm. meaningful yeah. at the end of these stories versus um, just sort of going, you know, like, full-on experience because, like, for instance, I think I that was my initial draft of um, the story about the trans flat, and I, I was reading it, and I was like, this is great. Like, these are very important experiences that people need to hear about. Um, and But I was looking at it, and I'm also like, if I'm, if I'm like, a skeptic, and I'm reading it, and I'm like, oh, I don't believe any of this, you know, what what information do I need to really, like, understand the whole truth of the situation? Mm, yeah. So I think there's sort of that, that the facts sort of come in to give a, a larger framework, not necessarily to convince a skeptic, but, like, right. to, you know, if you have It, it like, offers them a way into the story, them right? not fake news. <laughs> um, so we're all trying to do yeah. this, yeah. So... <laughs> Man, God, yeah, there's like a ghost hanging out in the back of your head now, and it yeah. just. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I wanted to ask um, what you want to do with the rest of your career because you are uh, have sort of done like everything that I think people tell young journalists to do to be able to like make it, you know, like okay. pick up all these. I'll take it. <laughs> pick up all these multimedia skills and learn to write about a ton of different mm-hmm. stuff and write, you know, for print and digital and long form and like mm-hmm. blog post. Um, so you have like all of these skills now. Um, and I'm curious about what your dreams and end game are for um, those skills. I mean, I think the main thing that I'm sort of working towards immediately is um, picking up programming and being able to do some of that like like I was talking about with the transplant story, like yeah. being able to data map it and visualize it, that sort of thing. Um, so I'm picking up the programming skills to do that, and I think like five years down the line, I'd like to be working somewhere where I can be doing data journalism as well as sort of the identity-driven stories to mm-hmm. sort of bring it all together. Um, right, make those may- facts meaningful. Yeah. Maybe as part, yeah. cool, uh, as part of a cool multimedia team. That would be exciting. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's sort of like the immediate goal long-term. Yeah, <laughs> that's, sort that's of awesome. Taking it as it comes. Yeah, yeah, very good. Well, thanks for coming out again, and mm-hmm. uh, I really appreciate uh, your work and everything you're doing. And best of luck. Thanks for the interview. <laughs> And that's the pod for this week. Uh, thanks again to Caitlin Maypetrin, and thanks again to you for listening. If you want to get in touch, send me an email at stlmediaworks at gmail.com, or you can hit me up on Twitter at stlmediaworks. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you soon.